That brings back some memories. <laughs> well, if you have your Bibles this morning, <clears throat> I want to invite you to turn back to Proverbs chapter 3. We've been coming through the book of Proverbs, and <clears throat> last week we looked at a passage with a great uh, principle on, on, on the aspect of ministry. Uh, we only got through one verse, but it was a, a good verse and a verse we needed to spend some time with. And it was in Proverbs chapter 3, verse 27, where it says, Withhold not good from them to whom it is due, when it is in the power of thy hand to do it. We saw that uh, understanding our ministry is, is really simple. It's simply about our motivation in, in giving to others, our attitude about what God has given to us that we look for those opportunities to be able to give to someone else, the power uh, that is in our hand uh, because of what God has given us and, and coming down and, and saving us. And then, uh, you know, for us, it, it's based on the simple understanding that we as God's people simply need to be aware of what's around us. The opportunities every day that God gives us that are just there for, for us to take. And I told you, and I, I told you basically the, the thought for the day last week was simply, Nothing will make us Christ-like more than being like Christ in our service to others. And boy, that, that is so true. I showed you how Paul took the principle in Proverbs and developed it into a New Testament principle found in Galatians chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, where it talked about for us not to be weary in well-doing, that if we faint not, that we'll reap in due time, because we're to do that good work unto all men, especially the household of faith. We talked about reaping more than you sow. You always do. We talked about two aspects of reaping. You reap more than you sow when you sow the wind and reap the whirlwind, as the Bible says. <clears throat> and when you don't do right, you not only reap by what you don't do, but you reap more than what you intended to do wrong. But the same principle we saw last week applies to when you do what's right with the Lord. God's word never returns void. And God will take those things and God will bring those things into our life and give us what, <coughs> what we need. Now, <clears throat> today we're going to pick it up where we left off uh, and we'll go to the end of the chapter here. And it says, we'll start in verse 27 again, and, and this, is, this is what it says. It says, "...will hold not good from them to whom it is due, when it is in the power of thine hand to do it. Say not unto thy neighbor, go and come again." and tomorrow I will give when thou hast it by thee. Devise not evil against thy neighbor, seeing he dwelleth securely by thee. Strive not with a man without cause, if he have done thee no harm. Envy thou not the oppressor, and choose none of his ways. For the froward is abomination to the Lord, but his secret is with the righteous. The curse of the Lord is in the house of the wicked, but he blesses the habitation of the just. Surely he scorneth the scorners, but he giveth grace unto the lowly. The wise shall inherit glory, but shame shall be the promotion of fools. Let's pray. Father, we ask you now as we come to your word, we ask you to quiet our hearts, to let us put our sole attention on the scriptures, what you have for us today. We appreciate so very much the folks that are here today. And Lord, we do so desperately want today to be a blessing to them. We thank you for the visitors, for the folks that maybe are looking at our church. And we just pray, Father, that you'll show them through this message today what we're really all about. We're just about people. 
trying to take the things that God has given to us and, and give them to, back to the people that God brings our way. Help us today, Father, to glean from this, to learn from this, and most importantly, to grow from all of this. And we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name for his sake we ask it. Amen. Now, there are a number of things that we need to see here, and we'll begin to break it down and see how it all applies. Let's look at verse 28 for a second. Verse 28 says, Say not unto thy neighbor, Go and come again, and tomorrow I will give thee when it hast it by, the, uh, by thee. Now, that's basically the attitude of 99% of God's people right there today. Don't bother me today. You know, I've got my own plans. I've got my own life. I've got my own world I've got to deal with. Come back when it's more convenient for me, you know, in my time. You know, come back at Christmas. This is only August, and, you know, I've got my things I, I, I've got to do. And, and many times, I've learned this to be true, and I know that people that work with me and dealing with people, you know this to be true also. Many times, people's needs are an immediate, legitimate ones. Now, I got to clarify some things as we go through here today. I realize that dysfunctional people will always be a disaster looking for a place to unfold. I know that. And I know that from experience, as many of you do, that there are some people who simply don't want to do what they need to do to fix their problems. So their life is an unfolding circus of just one ring after the other, one show after the other. It would rival anything that Barnum and Bailey ever put out. So I understand that. But you need to realize, and you learn how to deal with that in time. You learn that there's two kinds of people. There are some people that when you see that they really want to do what's right and they're willing to do what they need to do, when they have a need, you drop whatever you're doing. Their need is immediate. But then you have other folks who have a track record of just, you know, every day is another disaster. And you try to help them, but they never implement what they need. And so you've got to adopt the mindset after a while that, you know, lack of planning on your part doesn't necessitate an emergency on mine. And they, they go through life that way. And you, but you, you never blow off people when they have a legitimate need. When that person has a need right now and they're willing to do and they want to do and they want to embrace the things that will help it, fix it, make it, whatever it is, when it's in the power of your hand to be able to help them, then we do it. Uh, in most churches, it's in, in, with most pastors, and this is a very unfortunate thing, but it's true. It's not what uh, the pastor of the church can do for you. In many scenarios, it's what you can do for them, and that's just not right. You know, it's a, it's a, and there are many churches that if you have a problem, you can't even get in to see your pastor. He has a whole subcontracting unit underneath him that, that you never get to talk to him. You'll get to talk to somebody under him, but he's too busy to fix your problems. And boy, that is a fatal mistake in the ministry because um, you ought to demand uh, always to have the ability to be able to talk to your pastor. And in a day that you can't, the day that you find yourself in a situation where he's too busy to talk to you, but you can talk to my associate or my assistant or my under assistant or my directive assistant, everybody got a title today. You need to realize you need to be looking for a new place to, to hang your hat. It's just that simple. Uh, the, 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 the New Testament principle on verse 28 is found in 1 John chapter 3, verse 17, where it says, But whoso hath this world's good, and seeth his brother have need, and shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? That's a good question for a lot of pastors. 
they rationalize it in their mind to thinking that they're so big and they're so powerful and they got so much to do that it's okay for them to give you to somebody else. And, uh, and I'm not saying that you don't have people help you in the ministry, but there'll never be a day in this church that you have a need you can't get to me because that's my job. I don't know what these guys do all day long when they call it ministry, but the ministry is people. And you have to be there when people need you. James chapter 2, verse 14 through 17 says, What doth it profit, my brethren, though a man say he hath faith and hath not works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say unto them, Depart in peace, be ye warmed and filled, notwithstanding you give them not those things which are needful to the body, what doth it profit? Even so faith, if it hath not works, is dead, being alone. Now that's a great principle in the Bible, but it's also, and I want to explain this, it's also one of the great heresies that's taught in the Bible. Because if you go down a couple of more verses, I think it's in verse 20, it simply says, faith without works is dead. So you have a bunch of people out there that want to take that concept, take it out of the context, and simply say that, that uh, faith without works is dead. And what they mean by that is you've got to work your way to be saved. That works is what saves you. And of course, that's not what the context is saying at all. That's not what the verse is saying. But they'll lift it out of context and take that passage and then verse 20 and says, faith without works is dead, and try to get you to believe that, that you have to work your way to heaven, that your faith uh, without, you get your faith and keep your faith by the works that you do. Now, we know that that's not true. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, and Titus 3, verse 5 makes it very clear that not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he hath saved us. We know that. We know that works do nothing for you for salvation. And in truth, that's not what this great passage is saying. But what it is saying is simply saying that saved people who are truly saved will always do a certain kind of work. And that work will be the ministry. Nowhere in the Bible does God ever recognize a child of God that gets saved that doesn't minister. It's just that simple. I mean, I don't know what else to tell you. Your faith, you know, your, your works, it's not to be saved. It never works for salvation, but it's because they are saved. And that passage simply says, true salvation will always produce a true work. And that work will be ministry. Because if you get saved and you really understand what God has done for you, then you're going to realize that your job is to, is to take it to others. And what he's saying there, if, if it doesn't, if you don't have that, then there's two issues. One, you don't have, verse John 3, 17, you don't have the love of God in you. And the second one, James chapter 2, verse 14, your faith is not real. That's what he's saying. He's saying real salvation produces the real work. And when you don't see the real work, then you have to question the real salvation. It's what he's saying, simply as that. Uh, and I say it again, nothing will make you Christ-like more than being like Christ in your serving for others. And I, I run into people all the time, and so do you. And I'm not making any judgment call on them. People say all the time, well, I'm a Christian, but you don't see the things in their life that are supposed to be in a Christian's life. I, I'm just telling you what the Bible says. Now look at verse 29 and 30 as we move on through here. And boy, do we see this a lot. <clears throat> Devise not evil against thy neighbor, seeing he dwelleth securely by thee. 
Strive not with man without cause, if he hath done thee no wrong. Now, this is a great principle. Don't cause a problem where there is no problem. And I've seen this all of my years in the ministry with people. Now, the word neighbor here needs to be explained a little bit because in the Bible, the word neighbor is used a little differently than we use it. When we use the word neighbor, we're talking about the person next door to us where we live or across the street. <clears throat> That's not really how the Bible uses the word neighbor. Uh, in the Bible, it's used that anyone that you have an opportunity to help that you're associated with. In Luke chapter 10, verse 27, it says, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your strength, and with all of your mind, and thy neighbor as thyself. Now, they're not talking about the person across the street. They're talking about anybody that you have an opportunity to help, being neighborly. In a church setting, and I've said this before, we're likened to a city. Your body is likened to a dwelling of the Holy Spirit of God. Your body is likened to a building. Your body is likened to a temple. So all of you here today that are saved make up an individual building, an individual temple. When we all get together, then we're like a city. And in that sense, the neighbor in a spiritual sense is the people that are living right next to you in their temple of God, the body. And that's the picture in a spiritual sense for you and for me. And, uh, you know, uh, you just don't, you know, what he's saying here, it's real simple. And you've heard me say it all the time. We as God's people, we need to be problem solvers, not problem causers. If every Christian grasped that principle <clears throat> right there, that simple basic aspect of solving problems instead of causing problems. But the reason why we don't do that is because many times, as the verse is indicating here, we look for a problem with somebody when there really isn't a problem with somebody. But we need them to be a problem because it gives us an advantage of some things in our life sometimes. It's always easier to, to, to have a problem with somebody to justify what you want to do. The old adage that I've heard all of my life, well, I don't go to church because there's too many hypocrites in the church. How many times have somebody said that to me? And I'm sure you've heard it too. And that's the same concept. Sure, there's hypocrites in the church, but there's hypocrites where you work. There's hypocrites when you go to the ball game. There's hypocrites in everything that you do. But you see, when you say when you don't want to go to church, then it's easy to use the hypocrites and have a problem that doesn't exist to justify what you want to do to give you the advantage. That's the way it works. In dealing with people, we always work and look to solve the problems biblically. Don't make an issue bigger than, uh, than, than it has to be. And if, if everybody would follow that line of reasoning and just take those principles and apply them, hey, we wouldn't have any problems in Christianity. It would be all get worked out. Many times people will make up an issue uh, with something or somebody simply because they don't uh, want to help that person or they simply don't want to do what's right. You see it all the time. Now look at verse 31. Envy thou not the oppressor and choose none of his ways. Now doctrinally, and we talked about the book of Proverbs as uh, being a, a, to the nation of Israel, doc, the oppressor doctrinally here will be the Antichrist. And he's telling the nation of Israel, typified by uh, my son, Exodus chapter 4, as the corporate nation of Israel, he's telling Israel that the oppressor will be the Antichrist and, and, uh, and, and the nation of Israel, the Jew, is, is being told here not to believe anything he says, not to follow him and not to go his ways and not to be associated with him in any way, shape, or form. But the practical application is to me and you. 
And it will be for us as New Testament Christians not to envy uh, what the world has and not to go down the road of the world. Now, there's a great counseling principle here that I want you to see and understand. I think it's very, very, very valuable, very, very, very important. You know, we live in a very, we talked about this last week, we live in a very dark world without God, without any light. And uh, it's a very depressed world. And I, I totally understand, I totally get it. I totally understand why uh, the suicide rate is so uh, off the charts, you know, in a, in a world today, especially in America. I understand and totally get it why an unsaved person gets depressed and takes their own life. I get it. I get it. Darkness 24-7 in your life. No light whatsoever. You know, there's places in Alaska up there, uh, when you get farther up to the north by the North Pole, <clears throat> there's places up there that they go through four or five months where they don't have any daylight. And it's, it's, it's dark 24-7 for about three or four months. And they're so far up north and because of the way they're situated that <clears throat> every year they go through a period of time that's two or three or four months where it's total darkness. They don't see the sun for 120 days or so. There's many people that live in those towns that leave up there when that happened. Living in a complete world of darkness where you never see the sun, the, 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 the alcoholic rate, the, the, the suicide rate, all of the problems that that brings in because we were never designed by God. We never were. We were never designed by God to live in total darkness. And in a physical sense, when you're in a world that is absolutely dark for three or four months, you'll lose your mind. And in a spiritual sense, when you and I, because we have no light of God in our life, go through this world which is darkness 24-7, you're going to lose your mind. I understand it. I get it. I really do. I really do. But at the same time, I want you to know that, uh, uh, you know, it's a, it's a thing that, that we see all the time. But there should never be a child of God that, that finds themselves in a life of depression. Now, I know we all get bummed out about things from time to time. I'm not talking about that. We all do. We all have our bad days. We all get grumpy. We all have our times when something will go wrong in our life, and for a short period of time, we'll be down in the dumps. I don't go down to the dumps much anymore because I found out that people don't throw things away like they used to, so there's nothing to find down there. But it's a thing where we all get there at some point in our life. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about chronic. I'm talking about continual depression. I'm talking about somebody who gets so depressed that they can't get out of bed in the morning. And there's people like that. I'm talking about people who, who just want to withdraw from everybody and not be around everybody. And it all turns inward. Now, I understand why the world does that, but there's no reason for a Christian to ever do that. But there's tens of thousands of them that have that problem. And the reason is real simple. And you need to understand it. Now, you always can't fix it. Many times you can't. Sometimes you can. But at least you need to understand it and how it works. Now, the key word here is envy. If you're not, as a Christian, if you're not satisfied with who you are in Christ Jesus, and you don't recognize who you are in Christ Jesus, then you're going to become unsatisfied with yourself, and you're going to see somebody out there that's better looking, somebody out there that's in better shape, somebody out there that 
seems to be more happy. Somebody out there that has more money, more things. Somebody out there that goes places on vacation that you'll never get to go on. And when you start to envy that, it oppresses you. It oppresses you. I mean, the word oppression is the world system that will totally take over your life and take away any balance. And that's the other key thing you got to have. You got to have a balance in your life. The moment you get out of balance, oppression is going to start to move into your life. And he says, envy thou not the oppressor and choose none of his ways. Now, oppression will always lead to depression. It always will. The moment you start to be oppressed, you're going to start to be depressed. It's just that simple. And it goes back to envying what the world has. I want what they have, and I don't have it. I want to look like her. She's pretty. I'm not. I want to be like them. Why can't I ever get to go where they go? Why can't I have a house like she has? Why can't I have a car like he does? And when you get to that point in your life and you're not satisfied with who you are, and I'm telling you, your number one goal other than learning the Bible inside and out and being everything that God wants you to be as a child of God needs to be that you come to the place where you understand who you are in Christ Jesus and you are satisfied with who you are. If you don't, you're going to go through envy the rest of your life and you're going to envy the world system, the oppressor, which is always going to lead to depression. Now, that's just the way it works in a very simple, basic form. Right now, we're in, a, we're in the uh, uh, holiday season, aren't we? Christmas and New Year's. I can't wait for New Year's. And we take these times and times like these. You know what we do? We feel better for a short period of time about ourselves. You realize that the Christmas and New Year's and shortly thereafter are the two most depressing times for people? The suicide rate in this country is astronomical during those times of the year. The therapists and the psychologists and all of the men out there who take your money because of your problems that can never fix them, they make a bumper crop during this time of the year. It's the most depressing time of the year because we put so much into it. We inflate ourselves. We, we go to the Christmas parties and we have fun. And for a short period of time, we're happy. We look at the presents and your husband or your boyfriend or your wife or, or whatever buys you something, your mom or your dad, and you get a present and you open it up on Christmas morning. And for a short period of time, it makes you happy. Oh, I love this. Oh, this is what I wanted. Whoa, I'm happy. You go out with your friends to eat or the family come over and it's a fun time and you're happy. But then in January and February two of the bleakest months of, of the year. It all comes crashing down many times before. Christmas and New Year's and right after are always the toughest time for people because it's all fake, folks. It's not real. It's an illusion. The holidays are a man-made feel-good formula that collapses on itself and you feel worse after than you did before. After the tree is down, after the lights are turned off, 
After all the presents are open, and then the bills come in of all the presents you bought, <laughs> reality sets in. And you realize that it was just something that was man-made that will never, never, never satisfy you. Listen, the things of this world that we really think will make us happy will always wind up oppressing us and then lead to the depression in our lives. And it ends that way every time. Being envious of the things of this world and not being satisfied with what I have in Christ and what he has given me. As 1 Timothy 6, 6 says, godliness with contentment is great gain. But that's where we're at today. And he says, envy not thou the oppressor. You don't envy the things of this world, <clears throat> but so many Christians do. Now, let me show you something here. <clears throat> In the next three verses, I want to show you, and these are what I call um, Compound verses. There's two great thoughts in it. One positive, one negative. And I want to show you the negative first, and I want to come back and show you the positive. <laughs> but let me show you the next three verses, three things that when you go the way of the oppressor, why you'll never have what you want out of life. Now, I call this, these three verses, my recipe for disaster in your life. You want a recipe for disaster in your life? Here it comes. Verse 32, for the froward is an abomination to the Lord. Now, first and foremost, here's what's happened. Here's when you start to follow the impressor what you've done. And this is a fatal flaw. This is a fatal mistake. This, what I'm about to tell you, is a mistake that most people, many people, can never return from. Because first and foremost, when you start to go the way of the oppressor, you now have allowed yourself, and remember, life is choices, but you now have allowed yourself to fall into what I call a no-win situation. Now, let me just say something to you. There is no victory of the Christian life in a no-win situation. You can't win in a no-win situation. It's like living on the end of a street of a cul-de-sac. There's no way out. It's a dead-end street. And the first thing that happens, you may not even know it. You may never figure it out. It, I see it way beyond, and, and this is what the book of Proverbs is all about, giving you understanding and wisdom and understanding it's the key uh, to life and its ability to recognize no-win situations before you get into them and then avoid getting into them. Now, that's what the Bible does. That's what I try to do here. And many times it falls on deaf ears, but I'll keep doing it until the Lord comes back because that's my job. The first fatal mistake that a person makes is they put themselves in a no-win scenario and there's no victorious Christian life in a no-win situation. They'll get into a bad marriage, and they'll marry somebody they never should have married. They'll marry somebody that, 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 uh, that I, how many times I've seen them, uh, a guy get involved with a gal, and she destroys everything that God wants to do in his life. How many times I've seen just the opposite, and it destroys everything in their life. I've seen men and women or, or, or Christians put themselves in relationships with people, not in marriage or, or thinking about getting married, just hang out with them. And the people you pick to hang out with, 
If they're living in a no-win situation with God themselves, it's only going to be a matter of time that wherever you're living, you're going to move into their neighborhood on their dead-end street. It just works that way. I wish it wasn't true. I wish wish it, it, it didn't happen that way. But it happens that way. It happens that way with the unsaved. It happens that way with people. It happens that way with the world. All of those things, when you go down the, begin to go down the way of the oppressor and leave the clear teachings of the Word of God, you have just uprooted yourself off an of easy street, and now you're on a dead-end street, and you're in a no-end situation, and you will never win in that situation. You know, that's what amazes me with some of God's people. I don't know if you don't listen. I don't know if you really like what your life is. I don't get it. Why do God's people continue to exist and live in no-win situations when there's no way out. You'd think after 5, 10, 15, 20 years, you'd figure it out. But they never do. They never do. They never do. But I'm telling you, that's the first fatal mistake. Now, have you ever studied the word abomination in the Bible? It's a compound of two root words, abominable and nations. And in its most rudimentary form, it simply means going the way of a godless nation. And when you go that way, your life now, saved or lost, is a dead-end street. Now you've got a problem if you're a Christian because now, once you go down that road, now you've got God's hand against you. And to become for all practical purposes, as a Christian now, God's enemy. Now, what I'm about to say is so foreign today to most of God's people because they know nothing about a real relationship with God. I always liken God's people today a lot like the nation of Israel. The parallels are tremendous. Here you have a nation of Israel today who go about every Saturday going to their synagogues and doing their stuff and doing this and doing that, and it's all for show, and fundamentally underneath the surface there isn't one thing they know about God that in any remote way is true of the God of the Bible. And unfortunately, unfortunately, New Testament Christianity has went the same way. And we have think that God is just big marshmallow up in the sky. We think that he's some big grandfather up there with a long white beard that just sits up there and checks things out on a millennial basis. No, no, you're wrong. You say, well, God wouldn't do that to his children. God wouldn't become their enemy. I'm a saved person. I'm a child of God. No, no, no. I love you with all my heart. But if that's your thinking this morning, you're a fool. You do greatly err not knowing the scriptures. That's Kelly's favorite verse because I told her to her a lot when she was growing up. (laughs) I mean, stop and think about it. It's not Israel's God's chosen people. Sure they are. In Exodus chapter 4, is not Israel likened to God's son in a corporate nation? Sure they are. Even though they're in deep apostasy today, and even though uh, God has, you know, turned his back on them, are they still not his people? Will there ever be a time that the nation of Israel is not God's people no matter what? No, they are, because God made a covenant through Abraham with them, and that's where it really changes in the Bible. When he got with Abraham, he changed the covenant to Israel, and he said, you know what? From this point on, I will be your God, and you will be your nation no matter what you do. 
But I'm telling you, you don't do what's right and I'll chastise you with scorpions, I'll chastise you with serpents, and I'll turn you over to the other nations. Now, I want to tell you something. If God will do that, and for the last 2,500 years, they've had God's hand against them. And for the last 2,500 years, even though they're his people, they're his enemies. The Bible says right now that God has hid himself from the nation of Israel. Read Matthew 13, 44, Deuteronomy 31, 17, Isaiah 54, 8, 45, 15, 57, 17. It's all through the Old Testament. God, even though they're his children, they're his people, he clearly tells us he has hid himself from them and they can't find him. You don't ever want that to happen in your Christian life. And brother, if it happened to Israel, it can happen to us. Don't sell yourself short, friend. If God will do it to his people in the Old Testament, he'll do it to his people in the New Testament. And don't think for a moment of time that God won't hide himself from you when you decide to go down the way of the oppressor. When you refuse the clear teaching of the Word of God to live your life the way you want to do it, don't you think for a moment, just like he hid himself from Israel, he will hide himself from you. And you will wander from church to church, from place to place, trying to find God, and you'll never be able to find him, even though you're saved and you're on your way to heaven. But when you reject the book that God gave you, he hides himself for you because he only reveals himself to you through this book. It's so simple. Has nothing to do with your salvation, but it has everything to do with God letting you go your own way. And I'm going to say this again, and I've said this before. The worst thing that could ever happen to a child of God, the worst thing that could ever happen to a Christian is for God to take his hand off of your life and hide himself from you. I can't tell you how, how absolutely crucial that is. Now, look at the second thing here, verse 33. Not only is, is it become abomination, but verse 33 says the curse of the Lord is in the house of the wicked. You see, when you run with the wicked and presser of this world system, and you've got not only God's hand against you, but the curse of God on you and your house? Boy, does this answer a lot of questions. Now, I want to show you and read for you what I, what, in the Bible, and, and I forgot to make the announcement, but next Saturday is, is people ministry for those of you who are along. And I forgot to say this, too. We're starting a new year in a people ministry. And uh, if... If you're someone of the persuasion that you think that you're ready for that now and you want to come in and get that, I've had several people that uh, are, are coming in to uh, be part of that that have got themselves up. Come and see me. It's not something that I want to keep people out of, but as you grow and you're ready for that and you want to be part of that, then I want to, I want to make that available to you. You're going to have to catch up something. I had one girl who came to me a couple of weeks ago and uh, on a Sunday, and she basically said, could I do this? I'd like to try this. And I said, I think you're ready for that. I said, you have to catch up. Uh, Scott got her the tape on Thursday night. I got a call from her by next Sunday. She had been through two years already and up to speed and ready to go. Now, that's somebody who wants it, see? So if you want it, 
I'll be glad to come and talk to me because my goal is not to keep anybody out, but my goal is to help only those who are going to feel that you can meet the requirements and, uh, and about that. But uh, I say that to say that one of the things we're going to talk about here this next time or maybe the time after, it depends on where it's at in my list of things that we're going through, is I want to show you the greatest passage in the Bible on something that we all do, rationalization. You want to see the greatest passage in the Bible on what you and I are famous for? rationalizing our position? Okay, I'll give it to you. Turn back to, turn back to uh, the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 29. Now, what we're reading here is not to an unsaved man. What we're reading about here is somebody who is part of the nation of Israel in a corporate sense and is God's son. And in a practical application, it's me and you. Now, you talk about God's people who don't want to do right, rationalizing their scenario so they can justify what they want to do, brother, here it comes. You'll see this all the time, and I want you to see what happens. Verse 33 says, the curse of the Lord is in the house of the wicked. You thought the curse just had to do with the fallen race of Adam. You thought the curse was just on unsaved people, didn't you? Oh, no, it goes, it goes much deeper than that. Look at verse 19 of, Proverbs, or of Deuteronomy 29. And it come to pass when he heareth the words of this curse. Now here's somebody that isn't doing right. And he got into the Bible or he went to church some Sunday morning and he, and, and he heard the preacher preaching and the words got him. You ever been there? How many people ever been to a church service one time when the guy got up there, you know you wasn't doing right and boy, he walked right down your row and stepped right on your head. Amen. Thank you. The rest of you will have an invitation here in a moment. You can come on down and confess your lies. <laughs> and it come to pass when he heareth the words of this curse. Watch it. And he bless himself in his heart. See that thing? That's a man who's not doing right. He's got the hand of God against him. He hears what the preacher says, but then he rationalizes it and he blesses himself in his heart saying, I have peace. No, you don't. Where's your peace at? In the word of God, I have peace though I walk in the imagination of mine heart. You got peace in your own mind. You don't got the peace that comes from God that passes all understanding. You got the peace that's in your pea brain because you have no understanding. I will walk in the imagination of my heart to add drunkenness to thirst. That means your sin's only going to get worse. He's not going to stop his drunkenness. He's just going to add it. When he's thirsty, he's going to have a beer instead of water. He's going to make it even better. The Lord will not spare him, but then the anger of the Lord and his jealousy shall smoke against that man. Ah, here it comes. And all the curses that are written in this book shall lie upon him, and the Lord shall blot out his name from under heaven, and the Lord shall separate him unto evil out of all the tribes of Israel according to the curses of the covenant that are written in the book of the law. Now you see that thing? God separated him out because in his mind, when he heard the truth, he justifies it. He says, well, there's nothing wrong with me. I love God. I still have my Bible. Oh, I have peace in my heart. Oh, I'm doing okay. You ever ask somebody that you know they're out of fellowship and you go up and try to open up, break the ice, and you simply say, hey, how you doing? And they automatically know. Normally, if everything was all right, you ask me how I'm doing, I'll say, hey, I'm doing good. Good to see you. <laughs> 
You ask them how you're doing this. Well, I'm doing fine. Why would you ask? Because by your body action, you're way out of fellowship with God. I didn't want to know if you want to get right. We can kneel down right here and do it if you'd like. They, they know there's something wrong. You can't, you, we can't rationalize it when it's real. We get it in our mind that we're okay. God's people today, the world too, but God's people have no idea when it comes to God who you're messing with. You don't. You think he's some big old marshmallow. You just think he's somebody up there, you know, you can push around, shove around, order all the things you want, and then tell him off when he doesn't come through. You have, we have no idea who he is. Job 9, 4 says, He is wise in heart and mighty in strength, who has hardened himself against him and prospered. Nobody. I was reading this week the story of the Titanic. I love the Titanic. Wouldn't have booked a ticket on it, but I like it. Last year was the 100th anniversary. It sank in 1912, April. Hit an iceberg. It was billed as the ship that God himself could not sink. And after it hit that iceberg in about two and a half hours, she's at the bottom of the ocean. And 1,517 people went down with her. There were rich people. People of society. That just could not. After they hit the iceberg, they could not or they would not. They would not grasp the reality that this ship was going to sink. When they said, go to your lifeboat station, they wore their top hats and, and tails and gowns and mink coats. Many of them wouldn't even take their life preserver. They're standing around on deck like it's a festive attitude, talking about how they hope that this little inconvenience won't mess up their big plans in New York when they get there. They thought it was a drill. Just like the world system will lie to you and tell you that you can party all you want and do what you do and the way you want to do it. And there'll be no consequences. The band played lively tunes. Guys still played their cards at their poker tables. Guys, the bar was filled with people laughing and drinking while they were shooting up the flares, and every, every minute they gave that 30-second blast of distress out of the, out of the funnel of the, of, the, of the ship's horn. The band came out, and they, they started playing, and they started bringing a festive atmosphere to it. They played all the popular tunes that the rich and famous were all used to hearing. It wasn't until the reality had set in when the band switched from playing Give My Regards to Broadway, High Society, to Near My God to Thee and Abide With Me. You know, that's the way life goes, isn't it? Your world and your life has fallen down around you, your marriage, your friends, everything in our lives fall apart, and we keep singing, give my regards to Broadway. It isn't until the band switches at the end of your life when everything goes to pieces and you start to look at, near my God to thee, that you start to take things serious. I was reading this week the story of old John Harper. John Harper was a Baptist evangelist 
from Scotland, and he was going to Chicago via the Titanic to preach in D.L. Moody's church in a Bible conference. Great preacher. And there's a great book out on him, The Story Life of John Harper. Incredible. And he died in the Titanic. But while everybody else is in a festive atmosphere and their bands are playing and they're in their top hats and gowns and they're, they're up there having a great time listening to the band and the guys are playing their cards, old John Harper grasped the reality of this situation. And he goes from person to person asking them, do you know the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Savior? It probably was the greatest evangelistic service that he ever held. Witnesses gave testimony that right before the ship sank, when people were wailing and crying and, 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 and they knew now the disaster was set in, everybody else was scourging. He had a six-year-old daughter. He was a widower. He had a six-year-old daughter that he took to a lifeboat and gave to some stranger and, and knowing that he was not going to make it. He took his life jacket off and gave it to somebody else, gave his daughter to a stranger in a lifeboat so she would survive. And, and the, last, the last thing that they saw before that ship sank was him up at the fantail as the list was getting about that high. He had about 30 or 40 people around him and they were clinging on to each other and he had his Bible open telling them how to trust Jesus Christ as their own personal Savior. You see, there will always be those, and let's face it, this world is the Titanic. Amen. And it's sinking. And you, so many of God's people are like the people on that ship. The ship is sinking and we're, we're rearranging the deck chairs for our next party. Amen. There will always be people in any disaster, any time in life, who will have the understanding and the wisdom, who will grasp what's happening. And like old John Harper, while the world parties and Christians have fun and they get their attitudes and they do their own deal, he nests my orbit and goes around winning people to Christ. You know, a man made a statement after the ship was down and he was saved that John Harper survived the initial sinking. And in that, in, in that wreckage strewn water, he, he, without a life jacket, he was clinging to a piece of, of, of wreckage. But he wasn't looking to save himself. Oh, no, John Harper was a real Christian. He was looking to save others. The water was 32 degrees, the average temperature that you'll last about 15 minutes in. But a man testified that was saved, that was pulled out of that wreckage, and there was only about 9 or 10 people that, out of the 1,500 that went into the sea that came out. The rest of them perished. He said later, I was the last convert of John Harper. He said, when people were screaming and people were freezing to death, old John Harper was swimming from his piece of wreckage from one place to the other, winning people to Christ. And he says, I was the last man that he won to Christ before he was so cold that right in front of my eyes, he sank down the water, but I got saved. Amen. Now, I want to tell you, folks, what a way to go home to heaven. Amen. What a way to go to beat the Lord. I mean, having a Bible in your hand, or a beer in your hand. Having a Bible in your hand or a deck of cards in your hand. You see, there'll always be some John Harper out there. There'll always be some little guy out there, some little gal out there, that no matter how bad it gets, 
And no matter how caustic it becomes and how disaster it comes and people don't know what to do, and that's the world we're living in today, People are realizing now that the music is all fake. Nothing is really real. And now, just before this world sinks into oblivion and gets swallowed up by the Antichrist, there's people out there that really want to know the truth. The problem is God's people are just having a ball. But there will always be the John Harpers. There will always be the little guy, the little gal that will grasp the situation and be the John Harper of the moment. Our church has got a bunch of them in it. Uh, and I appreciate it every day of my life. Don't you think for a moment that I don't. Look at verse 34, the third thing. Surely he scorneth the scorner. Now in our world we say, what goes around comes around. The Chinese say, if you sit by the river long enough, the body of your enemy will flow by. That's my favorite saying. My kids were growing up. Many things happened in the ministry, happened in my life. And my kids would say, Dad, why don't you do something? Dad, why don't you say something? Dad, why don't you kill them? Dad, why don't you do this? Don't you do that? <laughs> my, they, they heard it in green, I don't know how many times, over how many years, that old saying. It's in the Bible. Not the same way, but the principle. Chinese just stole it. Chiang Kai-shek told it. <laughs> Sit by the river long enough. The body of your enemy will flow by. God says, Romans 12, 19, Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, I will repay. God says in Psalms 2, 4, He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. Then he shall speak unto them in his wrath and vex them with his sore displeasure. You see, when you scorn others, when you follow the oppressor and you scorn other Christians, backbite them, assassinate their character, Psalms 1-1 shows you the process. You start walking with the counsel of the ungodly, you start standing in the way of sinners, and then you're sitting in the seat of the scornful. You're scorning others. But you see, when you do that, you don't figure it out. You don't know because you don't know God very well. God turns it right back on you. Uh, uh, let me... Let me give you some good advice here. I know you won't take it. I, I tell people all the time. I, I tell people what to do, but who listens to me? When people slander you, and they will, when people lie about you, and they're going to, when people try to hurt you, and they will, when they try to assassinate your character, and it will happen, never think about getting back at them and returning the favor. Deal with it biblically. When you can confront it and deal with it the way the Bible says, it, it doesn't always work out, but uh, some people don't want to do what's right. But you can hold them accountable, and you can do what the Bible says to do, but don't ever get to the mode where you're going you're to return the favor of being scornful. Because when you do that, and let me tell you why you don't want to do that. First of all, great principle. Truth needs no defense. Lies, slander, assassination of character, all need to be propped up. Truth, truth stands on its own two feet. Truth will always stand where everything else will fall. And you need to rest in that. You know, as I, at the end of the day, either in this life or the one to come, truth will prevail. That's all that really matters. 
It, all that matters is truth. And the second reason is, is going back to them, or doing back to them, I should say, what they've done to you just makes you like them. And then you have a bigger problem because when God has to deal with them and drop the hammer of life on them, he'll also have to drop it on you because you become just like them. Because you become just like them. Let God scorn the scorners and shame the shameful. I found out after 20-some, 30 years, he'll do a much better job than you and I can do anyhow. Now I want to show you something. This is why I love Proverbs. We're going to see this a lot when we get into the, the Proverbs after chapter 8. Much of the Old Testament deals with chapters that deal with the blessings of God if they do right and the cursings of God if they don't do right. Deuteronomy chapter 11 is a great example of that. Now, I just showed you the recipe for disaster. Three verses. Now, I want to go back to those same three verses and I want to show you a recipe for success. Now let me take the same three verses and give you the second half of them, the, of the compound verses, and give you what you get when you do right and follow the Lord in His Word. Because one way or the other in our life, it's going to be the blessings of God or the cursings of God. There isn't any in between. Now let's go back to verse 32. I already told you about the forward is abomination to the Lord, but, here comes the junction disconjunction, but His secret is with the righteous. His secrets. That's what God will reveal to you from His Word that He won't give to others. I think the greatest example of this is the Apostle John. I think the Apostle John in the New Testament is probably the greatest single example of what a New Testament Christian should be. A lot of reasons. But the main reason I think that he is such a good example is because that he is the only man in the Bible. Remember now, he writes the book of Revelation 90 A.D. Everybody else is dead. He is the only man in the Bible that when he writes has the complete Old Testament and New Testament on a table in front of him. The only other person that has that is you and me, New Testament Christian. That's why he's such a great type. He, he, he's the man that when he writes, he has the complete Bible on his lap. You, nobody else did. Nobody else did. And when the Lord won't tell uh, the other apostles, uh, like over there in John chapter 13, verse 25 and 26, when the Lord won't tell the other apostles who's going to betray him, notice, he tells John. Wouldn't tell the others, but he told John. It was John who got the total revelation from God, past, present, and future in the book of Revelation. Nobody else. Did you ever see this in the Old Testament? God didn't reveal what He was doing to the leaders of Israel. Ever see it? Amos chapter 3 verse 7 says, Surely the Lord will do nothing, but He rewardeth, He revealeth His secrets unto His servants, the prophets. He wouldn't give it to the nation of Israel. But there was a certain element of the prophets and His servants who loved His Word, followed His Word, and where the rest of Israel didn't get it, they got the secrets revealed. Deuteronomy 29, 29, one of the greatest promises in the Bible. Doctrinally, yes, it's to Israel. Inspiration, brother, it's to me. He says in verse 29 of Deuteronomy 29, the secret things belong unto the Lord our God, but those things which are revealed belong unto us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of this law. The secret things that are in that book, God wants to give them to you, but he's not going to give them to you by going the way of the oppressor. 
Now, in the New Testament, Christianity, 1 Corinthians 2.10, God reveals to us the deep things, the secret things. <coughs> Listen, my Bible. There is no greater book on this planet that I love more than this book. I read probably two books a week. There was a time in my life when I could read 600 words a minute. I devoured every book I could get. I'm not somebody talking about out of school that didn't know what I'm talking about. I've read every book on psychology, philosophy, biology, astronomy, you name it, I've been there. History up, my, up and down, inside and out. And after 35, 40 years of reading and reading and reading and reading, I can tell you today that this book here is the number one book of all the books that I have read. They said one time that if you took all the literature that man had written, all the things that he had written in history, he says, they said you could cover the landmass of the United States completely with it, and then you could put the rest of it into a stack that would go out past the moon, which is 250,000 miles. And if that was possible, I don't doubt that it's true, but if that was possible, when you got all those books and all those literature and all those writing together, I want to tell you something, folks, you can judge every one of those pieces of paper what was written by the light of one book. Amen. This is the number one book of my life. Amen. Here's the second book of my life. <coughs> this book contains all the promises that God ever gave me, all the secret things. In fact, this is my third edition. Um, this doesn't have them all in yet, but the other one is a lot thicker and it's, it's falling apart and I'm in the process of transfer. I've got every sermon that God ever gave me in this book. I got every secret that God ever gave me, that he gave to me, and I got them in a book. Because I take seriously what that verse says. When God gives me, if God takes the time and all his busy stuff that he does being God to reveal to me his secrets, I'm going to write them down. One of the greatest things about Samuel, and he's a greater type of what we should be in the ministry, and one of the greatest things I know there in 1 Samuel chapter 3 is when he comes down there and he says, Samuel, let none of his words fall to the ground. I got me a book of my secrets because I'm never going to let anything he gives me fall to the ground. I read this thing twice a month. I remember these things because I'll forget them. Man, I'm as stupid as a stump when it comes to remembering things. I can't even know where I put my car keys half my time. And that's why I, I, I just, I, I was going to make sure that none of his work, and everything that God ever revealed to me, and it goes on and on and on and on and on in here. Things that God gave to me in life that he says, son, you see that? Yes, sir, I see it. Remember that because that is like this. And if you want to understand this, then look at that. I wrote it down. I, I got them all in here. I got things in here that he showed me 40 years ago. And I've kept them in, for a while I had them in nine, ten books scattered everywhere. And about three or four years ago I got myself settled and I started saying, i got to compile these things in one book that I can just have it. And I'll tell you what, these are, this is the second most valuable book in my life. This is number one, but this is number two. This is the book that contains what's in number two, but these are the things that God saw fit. I know we don't deserve it. These are the things that God saw fit to give me. Where's yours? Hey, and I know you're young, many of you are young Christians. I'm not even talking to you. I'll get you there. I'll get you there. But I'm telling you. I'm telling you. Most Christians can't even grasp what I just said. They have been going down the road of the impressor so long that they've totally lost reality. 
Uh, and there's no, you know, the Christian life, the success of the Christian life, there's no magic or mystery to it. It's simply getting, as Proverbs has said over and over again, the wisdom and the understanding and the discernment of God in your life. And, and you, can, you can judge a real Bible-based Christian simply by what secrets about the book that God has given him. And I exempt you young Christians. You'll get there at some point in your life. And many of the things that I give you on Thursday night, Many of the things that I give you people in the people ministry. Many of the things I give you on Sunday morning that I blend into my messages. You never know it. There are things out of here that God has told me. I'll share my secrets with you. I will. Because I, got, I think God gave them to me to help give them to you. But i got to be honest with you, folks. You can only live on my secrets so long. Amen. You can only take my secrets and apply them to your life for a short period of time. I love you with all of my heart and would do anything in the world for you, but at some point in your life, you got to get your own. Amen. In the Old Testament, you had the tabernacle and the temple. And when you go back there and you study it and you look at it, you'll find that within that temple there were things that were called the holy things. There were things that were called the dedicated things. There were things that God absolutely went bananas over when a king would take foreign, unsaved Gentile kings and let him touch and see those dedicated things. The Bible says, cast not your pearls before swine. And there's things that God has given me that I would never give to an unsaved man or a woman because they wouldn't know what to do with them. But I'm telling you, at some point in your life, got to get your own. Got to get your own. Look at verse 33. The curse of the Lord is in the house of the wicked. We looked at that. But he blessed the habitation of the just. You see, God will either curse your house or God will bless your house. See it all the time. Now, there's a promise for you and your home and your household. There's that preservation of your family I talked about two or three weeks ago. There's the aspect that we've talked about of preserving the unbroken chain of God in your family, of ministry and through ministry. And uh, it, I'm telling you, I know we've got a lot of young couples here and I've got a lot of young fathers here. And I, I just, I, I look at most of you fathers and I want to tell you, I, I, you, do, you, do a, you do, do a great job. I mean, I look at some of you fathers and I just think, wow, you, I watch you with your kids. I, 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 you just do a wonderful job. You really do. Uh, and, and I never say anything about it. Sometimes I do, sometimes I don't. But I just stand in amazement of some of you guys. But, I, but the number one thing, to you young fathers, the number one thing, the number one thing for you as a father to protect, above all else, the number one thing for you as a young father to learn to protect and guard is that unbroken chain of ministry in your family. It, without a doubt, the key to the family is the father. The key to the church is the family. And the key to the ministry is the church. But it all goes back to the father. Notice that Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things that God gave to you, you give them also to your children. Are you passing them on to them? 
And brother, that's not always easy. Because if you know anything about it and been around very long, you know that the number one quality of truth is that it divides. Mm -hmm. All my life, I've saw, we have some people in here this morning, some young gals uh, and, and, and some young couples, that their families want nothing to do with them because they believe a book and want to do what's right. I've talked with them for the uh, last couple of years. They've wept in my office, and, 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 and yet they're going to continue to do what's right. And, and the hand of God is so blessing in their life. But you think it isn't tough? When Barbara and I got married, they thought, you know, I got right with God first. It took her a little longer. I got right with God first, won her to Christ. And when we told her parents who were staunch Methodists, they thought we were off the planet. They thought we were nuts. And, I, you know, you try to explain to them. They didn't know. They didn't understand anything. They thought we were crazy. They thought we were, and for a while, it split the family. And, and to a certain degree, it still does. We just get along now. But, uh, boy, you talk, I told you a couple of weeks ago when Danny was going out with her brother, you know, boy, you want to see the fangs come out. Just start bringing up about Bible and salvation. But her sister calls what we believe a slaughterhouse religion because they don't believe blood does anything for you. Not always easy. Now, Bible will split your family. Uncles, aunts, mothers, fathers, in-laws, outlaws. But did you ever notice this? And, and I know sometimes we have a tendency to start feeling sorry for ourselves. We all do. I feel sorry for myself from time to time. I mean, uh, you know, but we all do that. But did you ever notice that uh, in, in, did you ever know, in Mark chapter 6, verse 3, the Bible says that Jesus has four brothers and sisters, plural. Now that means he has at least two, maybe more. But it says four brothers and sisters. So we'll say he has six. You realize that in that same passage that says that those six, by what he preached, and he preached the truth, they were offended by what he preached? You realize you go a little farther on and you study it and you lay it out, you'll find out not only were they offended, but John chapter 7 verse 5 said that none of them even believed what he was saying and believed in him. Now a little bit later, James does. But he's the only one. I mean, imagine the Lord himself coming down here, having four brothers and sisters, preaching the truth of God, doing exactly what God wants to do, and in his own family... They reject him and won't believe on him. You and me something special? No. No, sir. Why, why, you think because he goes through it, but you're stand for truth, you're not going to have to pay a price for it? You see, it's easy when you pay a price out at work, isn't it? Or easier. Boy, paying a price on your own family is something else. It comes down to the greatest test you've got to answer. Do you love your family more than you love truth? Luke chapter 12, verse 51, Jesus said this. I didn't. Take it up with him. He says, suppose ye that I have come to bring peace to earth. I tell you nay, but rather division. From henceforth there shall be five in one house divided. Three against two, two against three. The father shall be divided against the son, the son against the father, the mother against the daughter, and the daughter against the mother, the mother-in-law against the daughter-in-law. Kill the mother-in-law. And the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. 
And sometimes to destroy that unbroken chain in your family, to break that unbroken chain of ministry, that is vital. He won't just use the world. I've seen it in, as I said earlier, some of you young kids. Your mom and your dad and your parents, your sisters and your aunts and uncles, they think you're crazy. They won't even speak to you. All because you come to this church and you believe that book and you want to do what's right with your kids. Enjoy it. Wear it as a badge of honor. Amen. Now we'll find out what you're really made of. I know in most homes you go, you'll find that plaque back there in Joshua, you know, chapter 24, verse 15 or whatever it is. But for me and my house, we'll serve the Lord. Now we'll find out if it's just a plaque yeah. or if it's the real deal. And I must tell you this. This will help you a little bit. Those with the curse of God in their families, in their lives, on the dead-end streets of life, will always despise the ones who their habitations are blessed with the Lord's presence. It's just a fact of life. I, I've seen people in my life over the years, and I've seen people in other people's lives, that, you know what, the, the man or the woman did absolutely nothing wrong. They, 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 they did everything as good as they could possibly do it, but they were hated. And when it comes down to it, I know you feel bad, and I know it, it's your own family, and those things are tough. But at the end of the day, you know what the bottom line is? They don't hate you. They hate the truth that you stand for. And I can't think of anything better or prouder or more holy or godly that God will bless you for than standing for the truth. The question is, can you? Will you? Sure you will. Now, that was the medicine that tasted sour. Here comes the good stuff. Turn over to 1 Chronicles 13, 14. Boy, I'm going to get shouting from this point on. Thank you for your permission, William. I'm glad that you approved. <laughs> Wouldn't want to do anything without Deacon Williams approval over here. <laughs> Look at 1 Chronicles chapter 13, verse 14. Glory to God. Boy, I'm liking this. This is the Old Testament at work. And the ark of God remaineth with the family of Obed-Edom, the Gideonite, in his house three months. All right, here's what you got. The ark of the Lord is a type of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he brings it into his house. It's a picture of you and me bringing the Lord Jesus Christ into your house and him staying there. Got that so far? In his house three months. And the Lord blessed the house of Obed-Edom. And all that he had. There it is. There's the blessings of God over the curse of God on your habitation and your house because the Lord lives there. Amen. The ark of the Lord was in his house and God blessed him. And when you bring the Lord God Almighty, the Lord Jesus Christ, and he takes up residency, Dad, in your home, the blessings of God are automatic. Amen. And the ones with a curse on them will hate you for it. I'll tell you another great story in the, in the New Testament is the story of Lazarus. You got him over there in John 11 and Luke chapter 10, verse 38. You know, we read those stories many times, but we never really think about them. And there's nobody in the Bible, I think, probably, uh, other than maybe John, who has a, a closer relationship than Lazarus and, and Mary and Martha. You ever notice how Jesus always looked forward to visiting their home? 
Now, I know he went a lot of places. and went to a lot of places. He went down to Zizaxias. He went over to see this guy and this guy. But he makes a special effort when he goes to these people's home. First of all, when Lazarus dies, the Bible says that Jesus wept. You, only, you know that there's only two times in the Bible that Jesus weeps? And you want a little study, you see why they're connected between the two. I think that they are the only ones outside of John that Jesus said he loves. And there's a great connection there. But all the time that Jesus visited their home, he enjoyed being there, having that sweet fellowship with them. You know, it says something about a home that Jesus likes to visit. A home that he, he feels comfortable staying at. You know, I'll be honest with you. I've, I've traveled a lot and stayed in people's homes. And I'll be honest with you. There are some homes I felt very comfortable staying in. I've made some mistakes and opened up the wrong doors. I felt very uncomfortable, me being here. But I just go on with it. The Lord wants to have a house that wherever he goes, in your habitation, he's comfortable. Oh, Jesus, we're glad you're here. Come on in. Oh, yeah. Sit down. Would you like a cup of coffee? Yeah, yeah. A bottle of water? Yeah. No, 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 no. I'll get it. Don't open the refrigerator. Well, come on in here and sit down here. Uh, uh, no, no, you want to check your emails? Oh, no, don't get on my computer. Yeah, yeah here's your room. Don't open this closet. We're glad you're here, but, but don't, don't go here. Stay out of the basement. But I want you to enjoy yourself. <laughs> In the Bible, in the Old Testament, Israel had some enemies. The Hittites. Jebusites. Moabites. The Hivites. The Ammonites. But in the New Testament, they're called Shamites. They sham God every chance they can, in every way they can. Playing that it's all good and rosy on the outside, but black as the side of the bottomless pit on the inside. Shamites. Shamites. Oh, yeah. Aren't you glad you came this morning? <laughs> now, the third thing, verse 34. Surely he scorneth the scorners, but he giveth grace to the lowly. Now, grace is, in our lives is the number one key to dealing with people in the ministry. And grace to others is simply based on our understanding of grace that God gave us. Now, grace doesn't mean that there's no accountability or structure. It's not just that I love you and I have grace, so do whatever you want. You know that just as grace of the God gave to me as a sinner when I got saved, uh, there were some parameters and some conditions to it. I don't have the right to, to go do whatever I want to do. James 4, 6 says, But he giveth more grace, wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace to the humble. You see, when it comes to grace, the proud, the stubborn, the stiff-necked, 
They need not apply. God resists them. He resists the proud. 1 Peter 5, verses 5 and 6 says, Likewise, ye younger, submit yourself unto the elders. All of you be subject one to another and be clothed with humility. For God, again, resisteth the proud, but giveth grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. See, the more you lower yourself, the more God in due time, through a process, exalts you. Now, the world's just the opposite. The world thinks that you've got to make yourself famous and you've got to get up there and climb up the ladder of success and do everything, and that's how you make it to the top. No, with God, the way up is down, see? Amen. We try to get everything we get and, and win life and make what life on earth a quality life and all of these things, but yet the Bible says until a man loses life, he'll never find it. Amen. We try to get ahead of everybody in line and do everything first and get there, you know, the big fights at the Christmas and the Thanksgiving store where they're getting in gunfights and everything over the line to get in to get a five-inch TV screen or something like that, and everybody wants to be first, yet the Bible says the first shall be last, and the last shall be first. Amen. We want to get all we got, keep all we got, can all we get, and keep it all, yet the Bible says if you really want to keep it, you got to give it away, see? We want to put the quality of life in everything and have party time, party time, but the Bible says it's better to go to the house of mourning than the house of feasting. See, God in the Bible is always opposite from the world. Always is. Now, let me give you the great closing verse here. The wise shall inherit glory, but shame shall be the promotion of fools. Now, this first part of the verse goes back to what we looked at when we started back in the book of Proverbs, the nine character qualities of a wise man and the eight character qualities of a fool throughout the book. The inherit glory here will obviously deal with his uh, millennial inheritance uh, when Christ returns, what God will give you based on what we give up for him uh, and the cause of others uh, for his truth. You know, we have went through it in great detail uh, when we went through First and Second Corinthians, and in particular, 1 Corinthians 3, 2 Corinthians 5. It's dealing with the judgment seat of Christ and our inheritance that we either get or we lose. He says, but shame shall be the promotion of fools. Now, this verse is really clear. When Christ comes back, there'll be two aspects to the believer. You'll either have honor or you'll have shame. Notice there's nothing in between. And it's based on one of two ways you went, God's way or the way of the oppressor. The use of the word of shame here is clearly defined in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and Revelation 3.18 where it talks about the judgment seat of Christ, the shame of their nakedness not appear, and the fact that we're all going to appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Just as the faithful child of God is promoted to glory, the unfaithful Christian is promoted to shame. Now, there's a reason why he used the word promotion there, but we don't have time to get into it this morning. You would think of being promoted to shame would be the right terminology. It is when you understand the doctrine behind it. Now, I've said this many times, and I say it again, and I'll continue to say it until I preach my last message. There is absolutely, folks, no reason for a Christian not to walk away at the end of it all with the judgment seat of Christ with everything that God has for you. If the judgment seat of Christ is God's final test, and it is, the count of grading of the test, then the Bible that God gave us is the answers to that test. So no one would have to fail the test. Now let me ask you a question. How stupid do you have to be to have to take a test and the teacher gives you the answers to the test and yet you still flunk the test? Amen. 
we go through life blaming our failures and trials and issues of life on everything and everybody. Well, it's his fault. Well, it's her fault. Well, if they wouldn't have done this. Well, if they wouldn't have done that. Well, if the preacher wouldn't have said this. Well, if this person wouldn't have said this or wouldn't have done that. Well, he made my son do this and he did this. Or they said this about my boy or my girl and they're not coming to church anymore. So it's your fault. You know what, folks? If the Bible is clear in anything, it's clear in the fact that when that day finally comes, it will be you and your refusal to allow a book that God gave you to guide your life and the choices you made that put you in a no-win situation and you bought a house, third house on the left of Dead End Street. And that's where they're at. Over the book that God gave you that'll get you over the oppressor that you embraced so passionately over the deliverer that God gave you to give you the victory, the Word of God. Now I want to leave you with this. I'm going to get a little philosophical here. I know many of you can't see what I'm about to say yet, but hopefully in time you will. You know, most of you are very young. This is a very young church, which is a miracle in itself. Most churches look like an old folks' home in Florida, you know. But uh, we don't. This church is alive and fire, and God gives us with a bunch of great couples. We've got a lot of John Harpers here. A lot of good people. But when you were young, as most of you are right now, you know, you guys have your whole life ahead of you. You really do. The prospect of getting married if you're not married, even the ones who are married, you know, you just got married or you've been married for a while, you have the prospect of, of, of having children, raising a family. It's all in front of you. It's all out there for you. Life has, at this point of your life, so much for you. It really does. And you need to recognize that. But you also need to understand that when you hit 60, 70, or 80 years old, and you begin to realize that you have more days behind you now than you have in front of you, you start to look at things a little differently. When you get older, you begin to understand that the world and life in general Start taking back more than it gives you. It's a simple fact of the cycle of life talked about in Ecclesiastes chapter 3. The cycle of life as you get older takes from us our health. Your eyes get bad. Your hearing gets worse. You lose your natural strength. You start to have heart problems. Memory relapses. Your blood pressure gets high. Cholesterol goes through the roof, triglycerides, take a ride around the block. You get diabetes, get liver problems. But it also takes from you our loved ones. We lose our moms. We lose our dads. We lose our grandparents. We lose our aunts, our uncles, our brothers and sisters. And in time, all that life gives us, it will take back from us through the cycle of life. But that's not true with the Bible. The Bible continues to give and add to you more as you grow older. As you get older, it gets sweeter. As you get older, you get more fulfilled in who you are. I mean the compounding effect of the grace that God has given you, the blessings of God in your life, 
the promises of God that you have that have come true over and over again, the assurances that God has given you, heaven becomes more real. The Lord becomes more real. And be my loved ones that go on before us, we know now that it's life is just a temporary thing and there's going to be a great revival coming. Amen. The older we get, the more peace you have. The less you get upset about things. The more wisdom of God and understanding and discernment you have to figure it all out. And as you get older and you get in your 60s and your 70s and your 80s, the thing that God puts his arms around you and you see that just carries you through that the world will never give you is you see that unbroken chain of your family carrying on the ministry. That unbroken chain that many of you had to weld up because of your family that you came from was so screwed up. And now you have it. And your kids are soul winners. Your kids get into the Bible. And that their kids will. And the unbroken line of your family carrying on what you started. And you'll find out that God will be more real to you at 80 than ever was at 30. And realizing that, this old life that we have right now means nothing. It's nothing but pain and suffering, broken lives, broken marriages, broken hearts, disappointment. But oh, I'm so glad that God, the older we get, when you don't go the way of the oppressor and you go the way of the Lord, and that book becomes everything, and by the end of your life, you have 10 of these books full of the secret things. You realize, finally get to the point where this life means nothing. It's the one that's coming. Every head bowed and every eye closed.